Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Delighted to welcome one of the most successful female trainers of all time to the studio. An overdue first appearance on Luck on Sunday. A very good morning to Venetia Williamson. Lovely to see you. Good morning, Nick. I say it's overdue because you're having a wonderful season and it has been a, a career of steady winners and great success, approaching 1,500. Where's, where's the time gone? <laughs> you're making me feel old, actually. I hope oh. not. That was, certainly wasn't the intention. <laughs> And more, more that there's been an awful lot of success in a, actually a fairly short space of time when you think about it. Yes, I think most people that have been training, you spend the first half of your training career, everybody says, gosh, only that long, my word. Um, and, then, and then all these young people are coming along and you're starting to feel old. Is it, is it a very different game now to, to when you started? And as I say, it's not that long ago. It's late 90s, essentially, isn't it? That's right, yes. I'm sure it is. Um, and uh, I'm pleased that I started when I did. You know, there's a lot of new trainers coming into it now, um, with uh, you know a lot of success, there's a lot more summer summer racing, um, and uh, you know it's, it's 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 quite a different game. So do you think it's harder for people to establish themselves now than it was then, or not? I wouldn't say it's harder, but it's different. And I, and I think I think uh, you know you, some of the the trainers um, you know need to have a slightly sort of different approach from perhaps you know the, the the olden days. I mean you know there's a lot more summer racing going on, and I think that changes things a lot. But when you started, you were very much seen as a pioneer, someone with a, a modern outlook, someone who could get horses that little bit fitter. Is that is that a fair fair assessment? Do you think? Gosh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I think I don't know. I mean, you know, I'd spend a little bit of time with Martin Pipe, and of course, you know, he he changed the the whole blueprint for national hunt racing and, and training. And you know, obviously, you, you come away from there, you know, with with ideas up your sleeve, and and uh, I think he, he changed everything then. Tell me what that was like. I'm fascinated to know what it was like working for him in the in the sort of heyday. Um, I was there for one season, and um, I mean, just just being part of it. Minnie Homer won the national the year I was there. Um, you know, and there was there was a lot of lot of good people. Um, Tom Dascombe was was one of the jockeys there, and um, you know, not only did he train horses hugely successfully, you know, there's quite a few of us youngsters that were there that have come out and trained successfully since. And did he? Did he give a lot of advice, or did you just learn by example, or just sort of watch how he how he operated? Uh, if you had one conversation a week with him, that was one more probably than the previous week. <laughs> no, it's it's a case of you know um, being there and, and observing, and um, uh, you know. But I mean, obviously, David's you know hugely successful as a result since, and um, you know David was assistant there at the time. But without wishing to give away all the trade secrets, what essentially was it that? Martin Pipe did to change the game because he did that. He revolutionised national hunt racing. He did, and um, I, essentially, it's 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 the two words: interval training. Um, he had a short gallop, um, and it had to be short because if he carried on, you'd you'd be on the M5. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, in the olden days, you know, Tim Forster and the like used to train on downs, and all, all trainers used to be, you know, in these great downland um, places, you know, um, North Yorkshire, um, Lambourne. Um, and uh, Martin started training on a, on a five furlong gallop of necessity. Um, so instead of training your horse over two miles, you're training it over five furlongs. So therefore, you have to go up several times. You know, and that that became the national hunt um, format thereafter for training them successfully as interval training. So what's the science behind that? Because athletes interval train. Is it is it all to do with heart rate going up and down essentially? That's right. It's 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 a case of um, just n- nudging the heart rate a little bit further after periods of of rest, but relatively short periods of rest. And so when you started up yourself, did you know that that was the model that you were going to 
base getting horses fit on. Oh, of course, of course, you know, because Martin won everything. And when did you think to yourself, this is working, I'm, I'm doing this right? Was it instant? Um, my first runner was second, if I finished second, and my second runner won. So that, that, was a, that, that was nice, that was a nice confidence booster to get, get the ball rolling. And was it easy to get horses? Was it easy to get people to, to come to you? Because it seemed that you built up a decent size string relatively quickly. Well, not really, no. Um, I think I started with about half a dozen horses. I think um, when you start training, you, you have to give the um, uh, jockey club at the time um, a list of your, your owners that are going to have horses with you. And I, I think you're supposed to have nine. And I think practically every one of the nine that I gave when I applied for my licence didn't didn't show up. <laughs> so it was, uh, <laughs> it was a bit of a leap of faith, but, you know, we got going. But you have to be brave, don't you? To, of course. To, to take out a trainer's licence, whoever you are and however you start. Yeah, but I think that's probably much the same, you know, in all walks of life, really. You know, you, you're starting out and um, a lot of a wing and a prayer going on. So you, you had a background in, in horses, but it, it, you weren't from a, a long line of, of racehorse trainers necessarily. But was that what you always wanted to do? Well, not really. Um, the, but the great ambition had been I wanted to be champion amateur jockey. Um, anyway, and that all went for a ball of chalk when I broke my neck. Um, I actually rode in the Grand National. It was the race after the Grand National. Um, fell at Beecher's Brook, um, carted off to hospital. And then two weeks later, my next ride, um, hurdle race at Worcester, upsides in front, um, showed how long ago it was, um, had Peter Hobbs on one side and Graham McCourt on the other side <laughs> and, and fell and broke my neck. So that was the end of, of the riding. And at the time, I'd been assistant trainer to John Edwards. Um, so that continued. And from that point onwards, you know, obviously I was looking at the possibility of you know, being a trainer. In the way that only people in racing can, you talk about breaking your neck in quite a sort of breezy, nonchalant fashion. But it must have been extraordinarily terrifying at the time. The race before you broke your neck was when you, you fell at Beaches in the, in the National. We've got that just here, Marcolo, 200 oh, to 1. Whoops. Now. Oof. Ow. <laughs> yes. Oh, God, thank you very much, slow motion replay. Yeah, as you can see, buried head first. <laughs> Had, was, was that the start of the injury? Had an injury been triggered there or, or was it two completely separate incidents? Uh, no, I was, um, I was knocked out there, as you can see. And um, uh, I, there, was no, there was no neck injury. Um, I was carted, carted off to hospital. Funnily enough, actually, I, I remember one thing. Um, down at the start, walking around and talking to Huel Davis, who was sort of ashen in the face. I mean, he was fairly pale complexion at the best of times, but um, I remember him asking me, um, any regrets now? <laughs> and, and, and I had I had my whip attached by an elastic band to my middle finger um, because I was so determined to slip the reins, otherwise you get pulled over the horse's head. I, I was thinking if I slip the reins, I'm going to drop my stick. I mean, you know, the great optimism of youth, the fact that I thought I was going to need my stick. <laughs> Anyway, so, so it was still attached to my hand as I arrived at Falzachary Hospital, and I think they thought Miss Whitlash had arrived. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Marcolo, a 200 to 1, those were the days when you could line up on a complete no-hoper in the Grand National, and that horse was genuinely a, a no-hoper. What, what, what on earth were you thinking as you were cantering down to the start? Uh, do you know, you're just excited about the occasion, the event, and being there and partaking. And what was it like as a race to ride in then? Um... 
well, I didn't get very far, you know, so we just had the first five fences. I remember, um, I remember jumping the first, and, and, and as you're looking down, and you're thinking, flipping heck, that's a long way down. <laughs> and, and you automatically re- re- relax your grip on the reins to let the horse um, slip the reins through your hands, you know, and it's, it's an automatic reaction. And then you mentioned the, the fall, and I, I just want to come back to that, and I, w- I was saying it must have been absolutely terrifying. W- was there a moment where you thought, this is it, the game's up? Well, not really. I, I do remember about three strides before the fence thinking, whoops, we're meeting this a bit wrong and, and pity its beaches. And I have to say that was my last memory in, until um, being in the ambulance. And then Stratford a, a fortnight later. And was it, was it definitive that you knew that that was your career over? The weirdest thing is it was actually at Worcester. Um, I remember um, the horse... Worcester, me- sorry. Met it a bit long, just clipped the top coming down, so I just was fired to head first. And I remember rolling and you could feel, you could see the sky, the dirt, the sky, the dirt, and then ended up coming face down onto the grass. I could feel the grass on my face, but from my neck down, it was like the rest of my body was in 100 pieces floating in the sky. It was like it didn't exist. You know, we're sitting here, you can feel your seat in the, in the chair, you can feel your, the feet on the ground. But if you can imagine, there's no existence of that. I could breathe and I could talk. Um, and uh, I remember saying, I can't feel anything, I can't move. Do you know, it never occurred to me, actually, at that point, this is what paralysis is. And, and after about five minutes, um, gradually I got the most violent pins and needles down my arms and legs and everywhere. And then that gradually failed, faded away and then I could feel everything again. But I've broken what they call the hangman's bone. It's right up the top of your head. And it's, it's the peg that your, your head swivels on. It's an extension of your second vertebrae. And, um, uh, yeah, so I was in hospital for about six weeks. And in that six-week period, I'm guessing there was quite a lot of time to think about what was coming next. Mm. Did, it, did it change what you thought you were going to do or what you were going to be? And did it kind of make you sort of reappraise how you, the rest of your life was going to turn it out? Didn't, it didn't really, in that, you know, you keep thinking, yeah, I'm going to ride again, of course I'm going to ride again, you know, because that was, that was what it, it, the focus was, and, 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 and no, nobody is going to be harsh enough to say, no, Benicia, you're not. The only person that, that eventually did come up to me and say it um, was, was the jockey club doctor at the time, and he said, look, come on, you know, you're, you're not a professional, you don't have to ride for a living, I think you need to think twice about this. Is there... I... You don't strike me as someone who would who would take too kindly to being told what to do what to do anyway. Are there people who you're close to or who, who are in your life who who you can turn to and they go, no, you do this now, and you would actually go, yeah, okay, you're right. I think a lot of people thought, you know, hey, come on, let's be sensible about this. Um, but it didn't take very long actually after I after I came out of hospital. So what was what was between that time and the time you took up the trainer's license? You talked about your year at Martin Pipe. Did you did you go around the world and experience? No, well, at, at the time I was working for John Edwards as assistant mm. trainer, and that, that carried on for, for several years. Um, uh, when when I, I left there, I spent I spent time with because I'd already been in Australia and spent time with with um, Colin and David Hayes, and I'd spent time in America um, work riding actually out in California, um, but it was it was then of. Um, I think it was about four years or five years. I was assistant with John Edwards. Mm-hmm. Um, the time when Yahoo was second in the Gold Cup, which I see is in today's Racing Post. Um, that, that must have been a, an extraordinary day if you were on the other side, if you like. And famously, the great pressman George Enner was cheering Yahoo on from the press room balcony as everyone else was cheering Desdor because he had a big bet. But um, probably you and he and about five others cheering for Yahoo. I think, I think yeah, we were kind of outnumbered. Um, but uh, the... 
cheers were to no avail, but um, no, it, was, it was a great race. It still must have been a wonderful race to be a part of. Yes, yes, for sure. Um, yes, and of course, you know, to be there when actually Desert Orchid won was, was fantastic. And as far as your own training career was concerned, you, you sort of made your name with horses who were relatively unheralded, had come from fairly humble backgrounds. I mean, Lady Rebecca was the obvious one who, who sort of really launched you. 400 pounds she cost as a, as a foal. I mean, the, I don't think David Redvers, for all he's done since, has ever done a better bit of business. <laughs> yes, I think he'll agree with that as well. Well, he may not, but um, uh, no, that, she was fantastic. You know, she was, she was a lovely little man. And, um, you know, she won the Cleef Hurdle three years running. Um, and uh, yeah, I was very, very lucky to have um, a horse like that in, in what was my second season. Well, she gave people an enormous amount of pleasure. They just kind of no pun intended, cleaved to her, essentially, didn't they, for, mm. for her tenacity. What was she like to train? Was she any good at home? She was, yeah, I know. She was a great mare. I mean, you know, as you can see her there, she wasn't over big, but she had, she had a great athlete and she had a great stretch and, you know, she loved her work. Um, no, she was an amazing mare to train. It was a wonderful story and you, you were training winners at Cheltenham on a fairly regular basis. Did you, did you think it was pretty straightforward training winners at the high level in those early days? Because it seemed every Saturday I'd turn on Channel 4 Racing, you were having, you were having big race winners. Um, well, it, uh, it, it, it came, it came um, quite quickly, really. And, and, of course, you know, you take everything as it comes, you know, when you're first starting training. But, um, no, I think, you know, looking back, I was very, very lucky. And you had the services of Norman, Norman Williamson to rely on mostly as well, and he was absolutely in his pomp at the time. What, what were his main strengths as a jockey? Oh, he was, he was a fantastic jockey. I mean, I was very, very lucky to, to have him, you know, because he'd been um, riding for John Evers. John Evers originally brought him over from, from Ireland. And, um, uh, you know, he, he was just a, a great person to have on your side. You know, very experienced and, um, you know, very brave. Um, no, he was fantastic. And I mentioned when we were talking last week, you, you rang into the show and we were talking about young jockeys you've used and Charlie Deutsch is having a lot of success for you at the moment, but you brought on Aidan Coleman and, and Sam Thomas and I asked you whether that was something you, in, you enjoyed doing, sort of, but like you were talking about Martin Pipe, you're training the people as well as the horses. Do you see that as all part of the job? Yes, I, I do. And as I think I said at the time, you know, it's of necessity really, you know, because, um, you know, Sam Thomas came to us, as you said, and Aidan Coleman and, you know, and, and ultimately they both moved on, you know, so, so you have to look, you know, for, for the next stage. Um, so it was, you know, it was, it was great that um, I'd always had a bit of an eye on Charlie Deutsch's career because I'd known him and his family for a long time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, if you've got a good jockey and, and especially if he's claiming a few pounds as well, that's a bonus. Um, but it, it, it is a young man's game, you know, and, uh, um, you know, not everybody can, can ride forever and not everybody, you know, can, can keep kicking into those big open ditches forever. So, you know, you've always got to be looking for the next generation. And I, I mean, I don't want to, to, to dwell on it. Charlie's issues, they've been pretty well documented now, and he had his moment of madness and um, served his sentence for it. But you were absolutely resolute at the time that whilst you weren't trying to condone it, you would be standing by him and you were very loyal to him, and he's now repaying that. Was there ever a scintilla of doubt in your mind that you would, you would do that? Goodness, no, because, you know, as far as I was concerned, you know, he's a very talented jockey, and he was the jockey I wanted riding our horses. Um, and uh, I, mean, I have to be very careful what, what I say, but, um, you know, I've, I've always thought that, you know, national hunt jockeys have to um, act um, instinctively um, and make split-second decisions and act on it with complete co conviction. Um, 
you know, he, he did show that in what he did. Admittedly, <laughs> it was a poor decision, but, you know, he, he ran with it. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we've all made stupid mistakes. Not all of one's had to pay for them in, in, in quite such a, such a way. But, you know, it, it, was, it was no reflection on his ability as a jockey and, and, um, and, and the way he rode. And you obviously, you obviously warm to him as a person as well. Yes, as I say, I, you know, I, I've known his family for a long time, and um, uh, yeah, no. Um, but I, I, I love the way he rides. You know, he's he's a very sympathetic rider. You know, um, he rides beautifully over the obstacles. I've read countless articles down the years, and they're all arguments extremely well made, saying why doesn't Venetia Williams get more really good horses to train when she is essentially overachieving with horses in what you would call that sort of middle price bracket, I suppose. Why do you think that is? Gosh, I don't know. Uh, you could probably say that, you know, about a lot of people maybe. I, I, I don't know. I, I can't really say. I think, um, you know, I like to think that, that all my owners um, are friends. If they don't start out that way, one hopes that they, they, they will become friends. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a social thing as much as a, you know, a profession. Um, I don't know. Do you enjoy do you enjoy that social side of it? Do you enjoy the entertaining, or is that a part of the job that you kind of feel you have to do? Um, I do enjoy it, of course. I mean, because at the end of the day, you know, I'm single. I live alone. You know, so so um, uh, the people that work for me, my family, and and you know, and our owners sort of become extended. Um, so you know, and I don't have I don't have the distraction of you know personal family or children. Um, so yeah, no, it's, it's it's fun. So you don't mind being married to the job? You kind of embrace <laughs> that. <laughs> um, uh, you accept it. <laughs> In terms of how you get away from the sport, do you ever get away from it? Are there distractions? Are there things that can completely take your mind off it? Um, well, of course, temporarily. Um, when I'm driving to the races and I'm in a hurry, which is most of the time, you know, you're focused on the driving, of course. Um, you know, we, we all take a bit of time out and do other things. You know, I'm hopefully going to go skiing for um, several days next month and, and things like that. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, you know, in the, in the summer, I, you know, it's, it's, it's well documented that um, I don't largely summer race, you know, and, um, you know, so there's plenty of time there, you know, sourcing new horses, seeing people and, you know, doing a little bit of other things. You do like to drive, don't you? Um, it's it's an essential part of the job. <laughs> I, I'm not really talking about driving to and from the races. You actually like to drive cars very fast, like smart cars, quite fast. Um, I do. I wouldn't say I like necessarily. I mean, um, you know, th- there's a possibility I, I, I might be having to be driven quite soon, actually. But... <laughs> well, that I... I, I... I know why, because I've been in the passenger seat of one of your Aston Martins, and we, we weren't hanging around, from, from what I can recall. Oh, maybe so. But, you know, you, 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 if you're driving slowly to the races, you're probably um, leaving earlier than you might need to be. You know. But where I'm, where I'm going with this is I that know. you are someone who I is, who is in, in, instinctively, I would suggest, attracted to sort of quite dangerous pursuits, <laughs> skiing, driving... Riding racehorses, etc. Were you were you were you a fearless child? Were you someone who was always on the go, very sporty, um, no fear? Probably, I don't know. You may be right. Um, 
you know, there's always a bit of fear, obviously, that that sort of you know pull, pulls you back ultimately. But um, yeah, no, it's all, always um, you know a bit of action. It's always a good thing. And um, were you were you academic as a as a child growing up, or or not really? Oh gosh, um, I did A levels at school, did three, and um, but uh, you know it was um, always time wasted. Really, you know, you need to get on and uh, get on with life, get on with um, going home and riding my pony. <laughs> so it was always horses. It was yeah. always horses. Yeah, there was never any question of of anything else. What That's do you think you would have been if you hadn't been a a racehorse trainer? Oh gosh, not really thought about that question actually. Um, uh, I was interested in the art world actually for a brief period. I, I worked in London before I got my first job in racing, and um, I worked briefly for Sotheby's and I worked in an art gallery in St James's for a little bit. Um, and um, while I was there, I answered an advert um, for assistant secretary to Gavin Pritchard Gordon in Newmarket. So um, that was the end of me in London, and that was the beginning of, of, of racing. Did you enjoy London life? Well, not really, because I didn't really know many people there, and I, I wasn't there for long enough. Um, but uh, no, it was. Um, I was pleased to get straight into racing. Then. Yeah, Jack Berry was in this seat last week, and he was talking about growing up in Leeds. He just said he hated the city, and he found this tremendously ingenious way of getting out into the country. And that's where he stayed, and that's where he felt happy, and that's where he felt comfortable. Is that something you can identify with? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's. Um, you know, horses actually become, and racing has probably become a slightly more sort of city orientated actually really now I think um, I think a lot of owners that are coming into jump racing possibly have sort of cut their teeth initially with flat racing maybe you know and I think there's, there's a lot of um, city guys coming into jump racing so you know there is an um, element of you know the demise of the country tweeds and um, you know the approach of the city stripes I think. Does that change your job does that change the demands on your job? I think a little bit yes you know because um I think you know owners are coming in with a sort of slightly different approach. You know, a lot of a lot of businessmen are, um, you know, are very um, quick on decision making. You know, they, they know that um, a lot of um, what they do in their daily life, plus racing, you know, they can't all be successful. And um, you know, I think that, that they feel the need. You know, and, I, and I'm sure there's a lot of um, uh, what goes on in the flat. You know, you can make a decision about a horse fairly quickly in the mm-hmm. flat, particularly. You know, and I think that's that's probably coming into jump racing as well. And have you, uh, you've trained flat winners, but it, have you ever thought about training more flat horses, or is it just not really something that's ever turned you on? No, I think um, it's hard enough trying to keep on top of the form of um, national hunt racing without trying to encompass the whole of flat racing as well. So it's, it's not really something that um, appeals, no. You say keep on top of the form. Of, of all trainers I know, you are one who really does keep on top of the, the form and and what the handicap is doing, putting horses in the right races. Is that something you really enjoy, that side of it, just almost trying to unravel the, the puzzle, if you like? Um, I wouldn't say I necessarily enjoy it, because it's very time-consuming, you know, and, and um, you spend a lot of time in the office in the evenings doing that, but, but it's, it's, it's an important part of, of the job, trying to fi- find the races that, you know, your middle-of-the-road horse can be successful in. And, um, you know, if, if you don't spend time... You know, assessing the races, you know, you might not necessarily make the best use of, of your horse's ability. I remember when, when you won, I can't remember how many it was on the trot with Jolly Boy. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think we won five in 18 days yeah. with him. And the great Sir Mark Prescott, the master of placing horses, was 
you know, paying huge tribute to you because you'd found the conditional jockeys race on the Sunday, followed by the conditional jockeys <laughs> race there, and then the non-race there, whatever. It was, it was, a, it was absolutely masterful work. Yes, um, you actually can't do that nowadays um, because uh, um, the penalties within the, the penalty period after your horse has won and before his new handicap mark comes into play. In those days, the penalties weren't cumulative, mm. but they are now. So, so although you can, you know, if you're if you're lucky, you can win two or three, but you, you can't really do the the, the 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 line of five like like we did then. I, I suppose if, if if there's one moment you you could just take and and and, and have forever, it would be Monmoon winning the winning the national. I'm a hundred to one, but he was a good horse. He shouldn't have been a hundred to one shot, but he was, and he won, and he won by he won by miles. And, and you, like many winners of the Grand National, said it, it made almost no difference to your career. In fact, it might even have had like a, a sort of net negative effect on the amount of horses you had. I think that might be, might be so. I think um, I know some owners came to me um, uh, two years later, and they did say they were originally going to make the first approach um, just after we won the National, but they thought we'd been in, inundated with people that they, they actually um, hung fire for 12 months. Um, the unfortunate part um, was that it was in 2009, which you know we all know was sort of the credit crunch year, um, and it was at a time when a lot of owners were having to take a pull. You know, maybe in their business they were having to make people redundant, and the last thing that um, they, they could be seen to be doing was um, you know buying racehorses. So um, you know it wasn't really the best year to, to capitalise on, on winning a big race like that. But a, a special moment, nonetheless, and you know, it, with time behind us now, you can just reflect and enjoy it forever and ever. Amen. And I guess you just want another one now. <laughs> Absolutely, it's always the way. You know, anybody that's won a race like that, and anybody that's been champion trainer, um, I can only assume, um, and things like that. You know, it, it's very hard to achieve, and once you've achieved it, you know, you just crave um, a repeat. And, and and it's only when you're trying to repeat it that you realise actually how hard it was to achieve in the first place. Did you start off, I mean, did you have ambitions to be champion trainer? In the well, it, everybody does when you start, you know, um, because, you know, that, that's, that's the ultimate. And, um, but at the same time, you know, if, if you're focusing on it, you're just going to do your head in. If, if, if you're trying, you know, every day, I've got to be, I've got to be, I've got to be, you know, it's... Um, you know, you, you, you've just got to take each day as it comes and do, do the best that you can. And so it's now just a question of, like, trying to maximise the potential of every horse that you've got rather than setting necessarily numerical targets and things like that. that that's right, yes. Yeah, if you, if you set yourself targets, all you're going to do is set yourself up for disappointment and you're going to actually distract yourself, you know, from the immediacy of, of what, what you're trying to do. Do you always feel satisfied in the job? Is there ever a, ti- is there ever a time when it becomes monotonous? Um... I think that that's sort of slightly two different questions. Um, to answer the latter one first, uh, no, it's never monotonous. Um, but equally, you, you, you can't be satisfied in the job because, you know, I think it, 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 it'll take away the drive. And, um, uh, yeah, no, it, it's, a, it's a constant. It's a, it's a constant striving you're, the whole time. You're trying to do better. You're trying to, you know, win bigger races with the horses you've got. You're trying to source better horses. Could you ever imagine not doing it? Is this you now forever and ever? <laughs> I don't know. We're all getting old, aren't we? No, um. <laughs> not old at all. Absolutely not. Well, I, cer- I certainly have no plans to do anything else, if that's what you're asking. Yeah, it is, really, I suppose. I mean, it's, it's a different... I ask a lot of people the same question. It's, it's a different type of life, isn't it? It's not one where you go, well, I'll go until I'm X, and then I'll just 
Potter often mm. do something different or wind down or slow down. Or people but, don't slow down. Yes, case. well, I've got no, no plans to slow down there. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albastiet Cruel Dubai.